We're looking at Nehemiah chapter 8 today, 7 and 8. We're going to just kind of slide on to 7 real quickly and then go to 8. James Vernon McGee tells the story of two little old ladies walking out of church one Sunday. One said, my, that preacher certainly preaches for a long time. Her friend replied, no, he really doesn't preach a long time. It just seems like he does. We're going to look today at an incredible passage of scripture in Nehemiah 8 where the word of God is read from early morning until midday. And the people of all things stand for the whole reading of the law of God. I think we should apply that today, don't you think? As I preach for the next 45 minutes that you all stand in honor of God's word. This is an incredible passage of scripture as we look at it. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we see here that God's word shapes God's people. And God's joy strengthens God's people. That's what we see in chapter 8. We are going to revert back quickly to chapter 7. And we saw in chapter 6 that the wall was finished in 52 days. A wall that was at least two miles in perimeter that was at least as tall as where the roof hits the wall here that was nine foot wide with people who were not professional builders it was completed in 52 days much to the joy of God's people much to the sadness of God's enemies so we want to look briefly In chapter 7, at the power of the covenant community. We're going to look at the power of the covenant community, the power of God's word to shape God's people. We're going to look at the power of God's joy to strengthen God's people. So we get down to chapter 7, and we're going to figure out who's going to live in Jerusalem. And we see here um, that the wall has been complete. So think about what's happened here. In 458... B.C., Ezra comes back with a group of people, and they rebuild the temple. In 445, Nehemiah comes with a group and with supplies, and in 52 days, they rebuild the walls. And why are they having to rebuild the temple, and why are they having to rebuild the walls? Because they sinned against the Lord their God to the point that he allowed the nations to destroy Jerusalem and his temple. And so while we are building the temple and while we are rebuilding the wall, if we just stop there with the building, we're going to go back to the same situation we had before. Matter of fact, we already found out that the people came back into the land and they were already intermarrying with people who were enemies of God. And we see here in this passage in Amos 7 the importance of protecting Jerusalem and having the covenant community live in Jerusalem. It's very important. In Nehemiah 6.16 we read this, And when all our enemies heard of it, the rebuilding of the wall in 52 days, 
All the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. When the covenant community comes together under the leadership of God, great things happen and people who are unbelievers look in and see that God has been at work. We get to seven, he says, now when the wall had been built and I had set the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing men than many. And I said to them, let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot, and while they are standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors." Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard post and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been built. So we're looking at Jerusalem. We got the temple rebuilt. The houses have not been rebuilt. There's very few people living in Jerusalem at this point. The enemies, and there were at least four camps of enemies all around Jerusalem wanting to come in, still causing problems. And Nehemiah basically gives somebody charge over the city. And what was the charge? Keep the gates closed till the sun rises. And when the sun rises and gets hot, put guards at every gate to guard who comes in and who comes out. Why? For the protection of the covenant community. Now, just to understand this in a small way, we've had a wonderful illustration, a very tragic illustration this week of what happens when a nation does not guard its borders and does not have any kind of immigration system for filtering who comes in, who gets assimilated, and how do they become part of a nation. And now France is sitting in a a situation in which part of its country is literally controlled by radical Islam. And we just saw a preview of coming attractions this week with not just one attack, but a secondary attack happening while the first attack takes place. Immigration is important. It's great to let people come and be part of your country. They need to go through a process in which they adopt the values of that country and are willing to assimilate into that country. If not, and you let enough people come in who don't hold the values of the country, the country loses its distinctiveness. This is not just true of countries. This is true of the church. And we see here in this example, they were very concerned who was going to live in Jerusalem. Matter of fact, they pulled out the genealogies. And they had the same genealogical, genealogical record here in, in Nehemiah 7. They had it Ezra 2. And they had record of the people who had come back from the exile. And they were not just keeping the genealogy for no purpose. It was the, it was the document of who was part of the covenant community. It was important for Jerusalem's safety that the covenant community be there and not people who had no part. Remember at the very beginning when Sanballat and Tobiah 
made some jeering comments to Nehemiah. Nehemiah gave a very curt answer. His answer was, you know, have no part in this work. Boom. Seems kind of harsh. But in reality, what he's saying is the covenant community is different than those who are outside. So it's very important to maintain that. Now we'll notice the only way in the Old Testament that you became part of the covenant community is you were either born into it as a native-born Jew or you became a Jew through circumcision and and adopting Judaism. And we'll see some examples of that in, in Ezra 6, 21. It says it was... It was eaten by the people of Israel, this is talking about the Passover, who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them. So the people returned from exile and everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So there were the Jews and those who had separated themselves from the world and their neighboring friends and had committed themselves wholly to the Lord. We actually see this also way back in Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. If you'll remember, after they had the Passover, Israel marches out of Egypt. And in verse 38 of chapter 12, we read this, and a mixed multitude also went up with them. Who's this mixed multitude? These were people who had been living in Egypt probably Egyptians, who had saw, who saw the ten miraculous plagues upon Egypt, believed in the Lord, and were willing to follow God out into the wilderness with this group of people for the purpose of worshiping him. So while there's a distinction between the people of God and those who are not the people of God, there's always an opening for people who want to come in. If they want to come in, there is freedom for them to come in and be part of the people of God. In Nehemiah 10, 28, it says the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants. And then it says, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So there's an importance here in Nehemiah's case for protection. But I want to make a parallel for us today. I want to talk a little bit about the importance of a set-apart group of people in a local church. How do you become a member of a local church? By trusting completely in Christ alone for your salvation, repenting of your sin, and baptism. Those are the three things that happen that bring you to a point of coming to be part of a local body of believers. Now, you'll never find the word membership in the Bible. And some people have a problem with church membership. But... You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible either. And no one seems to have a problem with Trinity because the concept is there. Mark chapter 1, where we have Jesus being baptized by John. The Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And the Holy Spirit comes down in a dove. We have all three personages in that one account. So even though the Bible doesn't mention it, the concept is there. And the concept is 
the idea of a separated community that is committed to each other is found not only in the Old Testament, particularly in this passage in chapter 7, but it's also seen in the New Testament. And why is that important? Why can't we just kind of show up at church and kind of participate in what we want to and go to the next thing and participate in what we want to? This is not like going to, you know, the Longhorn restaurant where we show up when we want and we grab the food when we want and then we go to the next restaurant and go to that one and go to this one. There is a deep commitment to the body of Christ within the scripture. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible because Christ was so committed to the body of Christ that he laid his life down for us. And if his commitment is that deep and that strong, then our commitment to each other needs to be equally deep and equally strong. If you look in Acts chapter 2, if you'll grab your Bible right quick, we'll do a quick little survey. This is a parenthesis to the message, by the way. I know that's going to really encourage your hearts as you're looking to get out of here in 25 minutes. We won't go five hours, I promise. Acts 2.41. So those who'd received his word were baptized, and there were added that day to that number 3,000 souls. There's a record of who is being saved. They're keeping account of who is being saved. And they're being put into a body, to a group of people. Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Notice the writer of Acts, Luke, understands the church as a group and we're adding to that group. In Acts 4, 32 through 33, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and notice what commitment they had to each other. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. This is not talking about communism and just little, and socialism, lumping everything together. Everyone had possession of their things, but they were willing to let go of whatever they needed to, to take care of each other. That was the commitment that was there. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Acts 5. And this is, remember, this is the part in Acts 5 where we have Ananias and Sapphira. The first real church discipline case in the New Testament. Notice in chapter, so after God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit... I want you to see what happens in verses 11 through 14 of Acts 5. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So not only the church was in fear of what happened, but everybody outside the church was also fearful. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. So the people outside the church were in awe of what happened. They were fearful, 
and no one joined or wanted to join the covenant community for fear of what might happen to them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So here you have this act where God strikes down Ananias and Sapphira, and what happens? You'd think at that point everybody would leave, right? No. The people who weren't committed to Christ stayed outside the church. And as the gospel was being presented, what happened? People were coming in. Multitudes of people were coming into the church. There's a clear, if you'll notice, a clear in the church and a clear concept of being what? Outside the church. Okay? First Corinthians 5, we have this man who's living with his father's wife. And Paul basically admonishes them to remove him from the church. He is part of them. He is who they are. And they are admonished to move him outside the church. So how does this work? You come into the church by faith in Christ alone, by repentance, and by baptism. If while you're in the church, you get to the point that you're living in such a way in such sin and rebellion against Christ and his commands and are not willing to repent, when you get to that point, no matter what your mouth is saying, your life is saying there is no commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ or his commands, at that point the church does what? Removes them outside. Until, with the hope that there will be what? Repentance and coming back in to the church Look at Titus 3, chapter 10. As for a person who stirs up division, this is within the church, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So a person within the church causing strife, division within the body is warned once or twice. After that, the body treats them as if they don't belong to the body anymore. Purpose of that, what? To provide purity for the church. Commitment to the church. Nehemiah knew if he had Sanballat and Tobiah and his gang take up residence in the south part of Jerusalem, it was going to be a problem. No question about it. And so he posted a guard to protect that. God has done the same thing for the church. It's called the elders. And when you come to join the church, you go through a process where you talk to the elders and we find out, do you know Christ? Do you not know Christ? If you don't know Christ, you're welcome to be here and visit, but you're not considered a member of the church. If you, if we, if you've given testimony that gives us good reason to hope you're a believer, you're welcomed into the body. And so the elders are almost like the gatekeepers in Nehemiah's time. Why? To be harsh and mean? No. To help people understand that they know Jesus or not. If a person has no testimony, isn't it better that they know that now that they don't know Jesus? And to be able to explain to them the gospel? Instead of saying, oh, sorry, you're not, you don't belong here because you're not a Christian. No, but we also let them know clearly there's what? Inside the church and what? Outside. When we take the Lord's table, what's that all about?
We tell certain people not to take the Lord's table, right? Because they are what? They don't know Jesus. They're not trusting Jesus alone for their salvation. So we say, don't take the Lord's table. When you come to the point of bowing the knee to Jesus, trusting him totally for salvation, repenting of your sin, and following him in baptism, come. We have to love to have you part of his family because that's where you belong. You belong in families, the family of God. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Notice he's talking to the people at the church in Hebrews. He doesn't say the leaders or a leader. He says your leader. Your leaders, that's what? Possessive. That means they belong, the leaders belong to you, and you belong to who? Them. And we know that, they, that you belong to them because they're going to have to give an account for you. This is the purpose of, of membership, too, is who, who am I responsible for? You know, when we go to the amusement park, I'm really responsible for whoever's in my little group, right? My family. I'm, and it's, it's easy. Families are easy, right? They all kind of look like me. Most of them look better than me. Praise God for his grace. I said all of them look better than me. But I know because of family, Right? And how does somebody come into your family? They are what? Adopted. And now they're brought in and now they're part of yours. And you're responsible for them. The Bible says that same relationship goes on here with leaders and the people. That we're responsible for you. Not to lord it over you, not to boss you around, but to teach you the word of God and to watch over and protect your souls. And for those who don't know Jesus, to gently encourage them and point them to the cross. The worst thing that can happen is to make the assumption with the leadership that everybody here is a Christian and never find out, do they really know Jesus? So that's very important. So this little passage in the Old Testament, as obscure as it is, shows the importance of a committed covenant community. You know, and if you have concerns about membership. And I understand there's reasons to have concerns about membership. Some of us have been part of a church where the leadership was authoritarian and dictatorial and abusive. I understand that. We've all had bad experiences in other areas too, haven't we? We've had bad experiences with cars. I don't see anybody, you know, swearing off not having a car anymore. We total it, we pick another one up, we keep on moving. But membership is important because we are committed to each other. This wall, this temple would have never been built except for a committed covenant community. And so membership at our church means something. It's important because it says you're committed to doing the one another's with everyone else. And they are your brothers and sisters and you love them and you're willing to lay down your life for them and you're willing to minister to them and care for them. And you're willing to submit to your leaders and follow them. It's important. 
However, with our membership at this church, you came here voluntarily, you leave here voluntarily. If for some reason you feel like this is not the place you need to be, you have changed your doctrine, or some other reason you feel like you need to go to another church, then you have the freedom to move your membership to another church. What you don't have the freedom to do, according to the scriptures, is to be in no man's land. Floating out there like a maverick molecule, going wherever you want to go, coming to church when you want to go to church, be under nobody's responsibility whatsoever. And that is the state of the church today. Is there's a very low view of the church, a very low view of commitment to the church, and a very low view of commitment to each other in the church. God doesn't have that view. He has the highest commitment to the church to the point he shed his own blood. So just, just kind of check ourselves on our view here. So it's important to be identified with the local community. It's important to be committed to the local covenant community. You are qualified to be part of the community by repentance, faith in Christ alone, and baptism. Those who claim to be Christians and live in willful rebellion against Christ and his commands must be removed from the local community. And God uses a committed covenant community to be a light for Christ in the community. As we are committed to each other, we are a light. All men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So we talk about the power of the, of the covenant community. We see that in chapter 7. Now let's go to chapter 8. Now we're going to look at the power of the word to shape the covenant community. God does nothing by accident and he leaves us not to our own ways. He gives us clear admonitions and directions on how to live our lives. God raised up a man, Ezra. If you look at Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, we read this. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. Oh, that's great, isn't it? To study it, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And he landed at 458. So he's been teaching the people for 13 years. I would encourage you that Ezra was a priest, but each of you, the Bible says, are in the priesthood of Christ. So you should have the same commitment to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules to others. Okay? J.I. Packer, in his book, Quest for Godliness, says the following. For Puritanism was, above all, a, a Bible movement. To the Puritan, the Bible was in truth the most precious possession that this world affords. His deepest conviction was that reverence for God means reverence for Scripture. And serving God means obeying Scripture. To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the Creator than to neglect his written word. Can I say that one again? To his mind, therefore, no greater insult could be offered to the creator than to neglect his written word. 
And conversely, there could be no truer act of homage to him than to prize it and pour over it and then to live it out and give it out, give out its teaching. Intense veneration for scripture as the living word of the living God and a devoted concern to know and do all that it prescribes was Puritanism's hallmark. Now by veneration, we simply say, we know this is God's word. And we respect it as God's word. We don't worship it apart from God. Matter of fact, it leads us to Christ and helps us know how to please Christ in all ways. The Barna Group did a survey in which they found the following to be true. 90% of American households have a Bible. 80% say that it's the most influential book in world history. 33 and a third percent of adults read the Bible in a typical week. That's, that sounds pretty good, but, but hold on, okay? Don't get too encouraged. One in five will read every page of the Bible in their lifetime. So 20% of those who say they believe that 20% of Americans will at one point read the entire Bible in their lifetime. Half will simply flip through the Bible till they find something of interest. So their, their Bible reading is simply flipping the Bible, closing their eyes, putting it down, whatever they do, they, just, they have no plan for really reading the scriptures. Here's the result of that kind of Bible reading. 56% believe taking care of family is the most important task of life. Well, it's important. Is it the most important? No, it's not. 72% believe people are blessed by God so that they can enjoy life as much as possible. In other words, God's here just to bless you so that you can have the most wonderful and happy life possible. 42% claim the Bible teaches that Jesus sinned while on earth. 40% think all individuals will experience the same outcome after death, regardless of their religious beliefs. Now, we live in this culture. And while our Bible reading may be hopefully better than theirs, I would submit that for many of us, hearing the scriptures... Um, is something we really struggle with doing. Let's look real quickly at this passage. Our challenge is that unless we keep Christ before us, unless we keep what he's done before us, we're going to be slowly drifting away to the lure of an affluent culture. If you look at Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 15, this was a warning that Moses gave to the people. And I think this is one reason why America struggles to be a hot, vibrant, committed church in general. Deuteronomy 6, 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and 
when you eat and are full. That's a wonderful description of prosperity, isn't it? I mean, you just received all this stuff that you didn't even have to work for. Verse 12, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. You shall serve him and, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. That's what he did. That's why they're coming back from Persia. Because he obliterated the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom because they adopted the beliefs and practices of the people around them. Now, why would people who love God and pray and pray and pray and read the Bible, why would they stop doing that once they got prosperous? Could it be that our only purpose for pleading with God is that he would bless us with prosperity? And that the reality is that our God is really not Jesus Christ. Our God is really, we want all the goodies. And once the goodies, we, once we have them, there's really no need to read the Bible anymore or pray anymore because we, we're fat, we're content, we're full. Christians around the world look at America and they pray for us. And they pray that we will serve the Lord our God with all our heart. Because America's greatest temptation is not persecution. We don't have that yet. It's coming, but it's not yet. We have the other problem, and we are affluent. We have plenty. As the man who built all the barns said, I have plenty of food for many years. I'm content, and I'm happy. Nothing wrong with having wealth. The question is, does it have you? And is it more important to you than the Lord Jesus Christ, who became poor? To die for your sin. Notice as we go through the passage here. This is why we look at how they responded to the word of God in this passage. In 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, we have this admonition to preach the word that Paul gives to Timothy. And I want you to notice what he says. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearance in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to, to suit their own passions. We are here, friends. We are here. 
Just go to Houston and go down to the Toyota Center and you can hear it live. We are here. I mean, a stadium full of people who are there to hear what scratches their itching ears. He tells Timothy, preach the word, rebuke, correct, exhort, be patient, keep teaching, keep giving them the word. It's their hope for how to live for Christ. Notice in verse 1, here's a wonderful thing. Wouldn't, hmm, I would just love to get a phone call every week. Pastor Paul, I'm going to be there Sunday. I cannot wait to hear the word preached. Bob, you and I would probably just go, fall flat out. But you are here, and we're grateful for that. Notice what they do. The people asked to have the word read. They didn't, they, 90% of them didn't have the Bible. They had a copy of the word, and they probably hadn't heard it in years, probably decades. They were in captivity in Persia. Second, the word was read to everyone who could understand it. Notice it. It's not just the adults. It's the young men and women. It's the children. Everyone who could understand was there. That's why it's really important that all children of all ages hear the word of God. Three, notice they were attentive to the words, verse three. They were attentive to the words. Spurgeon tells the story of a pastor named Roland Hill. He was an 18th century English preacher who was greatly used by God. Shortly before he died, he was visiting with an old friend who told him he could still remember the text and part of a sermon that he had heard Hill preach 65 years before. Wow. Hill asked him what he remembered, and he said that Hill had said that some people were listening to a sermon did not like the delivery of the preacher. Then he said, so... Roland said this, suppose, supposing you went to hear the will of one of your relatives read and you were expecting a legacy from him, would you hardly think of criticizing the manner in which the lawyer read the will? Don't think so. Take as long as you want, just as long as we get out of it today, right? Rather, you would be all attention to hear whether anything was left to you and if so, how much? That is the way to hear the gospel preached. We have a letter here that gives us the greatest legacy that any of us will ever experience. The greatest inheritance any of us will ever receive. Do, are we attentive to that? When the word is read, when you have your own time in the word, are you such a multitasker you can listen to the word while you're also doing X, Y, and Z? I've tried that. I'm not a multitasker. The Word of God is special. It deserves our undivided attention. We need to find a place at home to quietly read the Word and think about what it says. We need to make hearing the Word preached a priority. 
We need to make worship in this body a priority. And may I just give a pastoral admonition. We love fellowship. I love fellowship. But when it comes time for us to worship the one true God, we, whatever conversation we have going in there, we can always just put it on pause, come in, prepare our hearts to worship God. When you go to Revelation, that's all they're doing is worshiping God. Around the throne are the four living creatures and the 24 elders and people, tongues, and nations, and tribes, all worshiping the king. We need to make worship a greater priority. I need to make worship a greater priority. We need to make attentiveness to God's word a greater priority. Not only for ourselves, because our children watch and see what our priorities are. For Ezra and the scriptures were above the people. He was on a platform. They had built this platform so that he could be above the people with the word of God. Now, what does that say? When you go into the office of, a, of an executive, however they usually arrange it, you're sitting in a chair that just happens to be lower than they are. It kind of sinks in. You're kind of looking up at them as they're talking to you. Position means a lot. Why was it important for the word to be over the people? Because it is, it's what shapes them. It has authority over them. Stephen Alford said, I'm tired of hearing people say I'm standing on the word of God. We should be standing under it. And we understand what people say when they say they're standing on the word of God. But are you standing under it? Are you submitting to it? Is it what's important to you? Five, the people stood in reverence of the word. Verse five. They actually stood the whole morning as the law was read. Why? Because they had come back to Jerusalem. They had been in captivity for 70 years because they hadn't obeyed the law of God. God had taken them to the woodshed. They came back, and their city was in rubble. And they spent all this time rebuilding it, and they realized, I better hear what he had to say. It's like the guy who's trying to repair a bike or repair, a, repair some device and doesn't get out the manual. And after he's torn it apart and can't figure out how it goes back together, then he grabs the manual in some hope that he can figure out how to get the thing back together. They realized they needed the word of God. Do you realize you need the word of God? These people did. The people came with worshipful hearts. Look at verse 6. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. They wept. They were concerned. They worshiped. Seven, Ezra and the Levites helped the people understand God's word. So here we have Ezra up there reading. He's got men on his left side, men on his right side, and people all out in this crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. 
And as Ezra reads, these people are helping everybody understand what they're saying. It wasn't so much, I don't think it's so much a language issue. It could have been, because they've been in foreign countries for all those years. A lot of it was just helping them understand the meaning of the text. That's what we do. That's what teachers do. We help you understand what the word is saying. Eight. Notice that the word of God brought conviction. Might be helpful if I get into Nehemiah. No wonder eight didn't sound right. Okay. Eight verse nine. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Now, notice what he tells them. You'd think he'd say, okay, that's good. You need to, you need to continue to mourn. He says the day's holy. The seventh month in the Jewish calendar has three feasts. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. The Day of Atonement was coming. The tenth day of the month was coming. They would lay their sins before God. What does he say right now? Rejoice in who God is. Rejoice in how good God is. Look what God has done for you. He's brought you back here to this place. He's planted you here. There's a place to mourn. But there's a real balance between mourning and rejoicing. If you are like heavy on the mourning side and you're light on the rejoicing side, you're out of balance. You're out of balance. Rejoice. He wanted the people to rejoice. And then notice verse 13. The heads of households come. The heads of the fathers come to be instructed by Ezra. Men, this is admonition to us as heads of households who instruct our children. <clears throat> two hours a day, three hours a day. Two to three hours a week is not enough instruction for your children in the word of God. You need to instruct your children in the ways of the Lord. That's important. So we see the power of the word is it's shaping these people. These people need to repent of their sin. They need to get underneath the word of God and be obedient to the word of God. Okay? But notice what happens. They, as they come together, they realize that there's a feast coming up that they haven't celebrated. It's the Feast of Booze. What was the Feast of Booths? It was a time when people gathered. They all came into Jerusalem and they got olive branches and everything and they created this little temporary hut and they lived in it for seven days and they remembered God's faithfulness. When they came into Israel, they were remembering that God had taken care of them for the 40 years in the wilderness and set them free from Egypt. These people are remembering God's faithfulness to bring them back out of captivity and to bring them home and to rebuild the temple. 
and to rebuild the wall. But notice they're called to focus on what God has done. I call this the power of God's joy to strengthen his people. If I just tell you, you've got all these commandments you need to obey. I need some power to do that. I need some power. And the purpose of the feast was to remind the people of God's faithfulness to them. Reminded them that God loved them. That he had delivered them that he was watching over and caring for them. That's the purpose of the feast, is to rejoice in the Lord. This is the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is the joy in knowing who he is. And knowing that he's compassionate and merciful and doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. That gives me power. And to know that he has a plan for me. And he's going to take care of me no matter how bad things look. He's going to take care of me. And I look back to historical events that remind me of that. And that's why the Bible's good for all of us. Because we're all part of this covenant community, aren't we, for believers? And what happened to our brothers and sisters in the Old Testament reminds us of God's faithfulness. But the greatest picture of God's faithfulness is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He became the substitute for us. He who was rich became poor. He who was perfect was mocked and beaten and crucified. To set you free from your sin. Isn't that, that's just, that's just great news. Did we get a sense of that as we sang in Christ alone? Did we get a sense of that as we sang the last song? And um, I forgot even the name of the last song. It is well. Thank you. As we come to worship, we're reminding each other of God's faithfulness. Because that's what puts wind in our sails to live for him. As I've said it before, the gospel is not just something we have so that we trust Jesus and now we're a Christian. It's a constant source of encouragement that we're loved, that we're forgiven, that he has a plan for us, that he has a destination for us, that he's going to use us for his purposes and his glory. It's all there. It's all there. So while the Jews have their feasts, and you can enjoy the feasts, if you want to go ahead and get in the backyard and create you a little, a little feast of booze and put you some posts up, put you some PVC pipe up and put you some branches over there, live in there for a few days and just be grateful how God has provided for your family, go ahead. But you have a greater testimony. And that is Jesus Christ and his gospel. So for these people, they need to be formed by the word. But the word apart from the love of God and his faithfulness, just 
crushes us. So we need the power of the joy of God to strengthen us, to live for him. Brothers and sisters, you and I are on a lifelong journey to know our God and to understand what he did for us at the cross. And all of us have different depths to which we understand that. The more you and I understand what he's done for us and what he's promised us, the more we'll be able to say no to the circumstances around us, to the evil around us, to the evil within us. We'll be able to say no to all that because of a much greater joy, a much greater person who loves us. So even here in the Old Testament, in Nehemiah 8, these people are celebrating the goodness of God and his faithfulness. And they are rejoicing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And we're grateful for Jesus and Jesus alone. He alone is our righteousness. We can add nothing to his righteousness to make us acceptable to God. Father, I pray for people here who have not trusted Jesus alone to forgive them of their sins, to cleanse them and to use them for his purposes. I pray that they would see that their best deeds, their best efforts are completely inadequate to receive the acceptance of God. We're so grateful, Jesus, that your father said, this is my son in whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Father, you're pleased in Jesus in his perfect life that he's lived throughout all eternity. And Lord, we're grateful for the great exchange in which you took our sin and we received your righteousness. Whatever the temptation, whatever the trial, Lord, instead of us trying to do better, Let's first rejoice in what you did. And then we'll have the strength to do what you've called us to do for your glory and for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.